Constructed Criticism is sponsored by Oasis Games. MTGOasis.com is the place to get cards for your next Magic event. Try them out with code CCMTG for 15% off of your first order, and use the code WouldThatBeGood for 4% off of every order. Want to support the show directly? Head on over to Patreon.com CCMTG to check out some awesome benefits and future goals for the show. Thanks for listening, and here's this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at purentgeo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from Constructed Criticism. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 395th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your host, Mason, joined by my stalwart co-host, Abe. Abe, how you doing? Can I get a definition on stalwart? Hang on. I'll Google it. You can say no. (laughs) No, I'm just going to make sure that I get it correct. Uh, Stalwart means loyal, reliable, and hardworking. Oh, well, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. I do. When I thought of stalwart in my head, the definition was knightly. Was what I was I'm a say. knightly. Yeah, knightly. Like you know, knights like do a lot of good stuff. Like they're hardworking, they're reliable, and they're loyal. <laughs> Back, this is this is just like a really dumb old story from when I was. I think it was literally my 18th birthday. I went and I played an, an open in Richmond, and I had a Reed Duke token. And it was a night token, one of the SCG like uh, tokens they gave out back in the day. From like they gave it to us with our month of free premium and all their stuff for playing. And they were like, "Man, it's so good that Reed Duke is the knight." And I was like, "Yeah, there's not a more surly dude than Reed Duke." And then they were like, "Do you know what that word means?" I was like, "I don't know." It seems like, it's like you call them sir, and they're like, "No, no, no, it means the opposite." It's really funny. And I was like, "Oh, interesting." So that's my that's my knight story for the day. Any history of Benalia's in the chat? Uh, the new segment. New segment, History of Benalia. That's actually kind of a sick name for, like, an old school, like, like the Receivables type thing, you know what I mean? That's, like, kind of Yeah, sick yeah, name. for a good lore podcast where you just go over, like, the books from the 90s. Heck yeah. Now we're talking diversifying. Anyway, Spencer is not here today. Spencer had a crazy work week. They launched, like, a huge project thing, so he is out and about. Spencer also hates Standard. You know how it is, eh? But he never wants to talk about Standard on the podcast he is always trying to get us to talk about modern. And so he was just like, standard bands? Not today. If modern was here, Loris was gone, we'd have Spencer. But uh, that's not happened this week. But we are going to talk about the BNR and everything related to that. But first, it is time for always improving. That is the main point of the show. Abe, I'll start things off this week. I played in the showcase. I- I've learned the word for it. Because I went 7-2 and got 18th on breakers. Pog. My always spring moment from this is that going into the showcase, I was trying to find a, a deck to play. You know, not that I would ever let someone use cards on my hashtag sponsored mana traders account. But if let's say I had less mana trader money than I normally do for whatever reason, I was looking for a deck that I could play uh, that wasn't Hammer. Because I could, I could have played Hammer very easily with the rental. And I was looking through stuff and I found... A deck similar to the deck I ultimately played, which was Indomitable Creativity with Archon. And the thing that kind of sparked me on this was uh, the podcast Dominaria's Judgment with 
uh, Dom Harvey and Ari Lax, and they went over the deck, and they seemed a little puzzled by uh, Archon in the moment, and their conclusion was that it kind of splits the difference, so you kind of have a fair game plan while still being kind of unfair in a lot of matchups. I kind of thought, like, wow, I think that's actually way more important than they're giving it credit for on the podcast uh, when they were talking about it. And when they were talking about it, it felt to me like it was a little, not dismissive, but like they kind of needed to see a little bit more of the pudding before they were going to buy it. Uh, and I was kind of like, wow, I think this is actually better than Archon. I'm sorry, better than um, Embercool and Sarah's in the deck because the four-color deck is all about grinding. And it's like, well, the Archon, three-for-ones like every time, right? Like it kills one of their things, draws you a card, makes them discard a card, and then Helixes. So they lose three, you gain three. And I was like, wow, that's really, really good in a deck that's all about grinding. And in my kind of hunt to look for this, I found a list that was similar to what I played, which was more of a blue-red tempo-based deck. And so that deck played, like, four Transmogrifies uh, and kind of tried to, like, and a bunch of Spell Pierces and stuff and just tried to, like, gimp the opponent and then Archon them and hope that went the distance. And so I kind of messed around with things, played three leagues with the deck on Friday night. This all happened on Friday after work, by the way, like, between that and going to bed. And changed the deck and then played it in the showcase and went 7-2. And the always improving one kind of came from, like, what if we take this sort of known archetype and we experiment with what it can be done and kind of take some chances on things and try it out? Because the kind of default move would have been, I think, to, like, just take the four-color one, do the swap. And I think that while that is really good and actually probably better than the Ember Cool Sarah still, I think that the Archon actually really fits the blue-red package a lot more. And the sort of having this burn, tempo-y game really works out well with that, and having a small amount of transmogrifies and stuff really goes along with the deck. And since 7 2 with it and posting on Twitter, someone got ninth in the challenge the next day. There's been a bunch of 5 0s. The deck's actually been really tearing it up. I, I turned on twitch.tv tonight before we recorded, and all four streamers I clicked on were playing the deck. Influential. Yeah, yeah. Can't, can't escape it. And it's a deck that was there the whole time, and it reminds me a lot of when Shadow was first found, right? Like the cards for Shadow, when we originally found it in Modern, were there for years, and no one really talked about it or figured it out. These cards have only been here for a couple months with MH2, but I had never seen anyone try to do anything with Transmogrify and a bunch of spell pierces and stuff like that. And just kind of taking their idea and stepping it back a little bit and making it a little less of a... Gimmick isn't the, a good word for it, but a little more less all-in. Yeah, take, taking it out way. of the one-trick territory, giving it a little bit more Yeah, depth. being like, hey, what if we try to play like a real game or whatever and we had more cards that are flexible and try to like, you know... We're trying to get you a little bit, but I don't have to get you if I'm going to win. And I, I won a lot of games this weekend that were like hard cast Archon of Cruelty games. Like eight mana, no treasures, my two blood crypts went the distance. And uh, that was, you know, it's a big always improving moment to kind of like step back, explore these things, see what we can do with those things. And, you know, this time it paid off. It doesn't always pay off, but I think it's important to take those kind of risks and look back on those things. So Absolutely. Out of curiosity, have you thought about the like primeval Titan builds of that tech much? Yeah, I did, because when I was thinking about the creativity, I was like, well, why don't I just, like, Valakut ramp them and kill them? But my thoughts on it are that they're kind of twofold. One, it's that this is probably the best way to be scape-shifting, essentially, right? Like, indomitable creativity, putting a Titan in play on turn four is essentially scape-shift on, like, five or whatever. Yeah. But I think that it's a little too all-in in a way that, like, 
you really hope that the card Valakut will go the distance, right? And so the matchup has to be something where Valakut will win. So it needs to be like a money pile matchup or uh, a hammer matchup before they actually get hammer on the board so you can actually control things. While Archon creates a little bit more grind with the way Modern's played right now. And also I think there's there was a small amount of adjustment that needs to happen with players where people, once they realized, like they would see me have all these mountains and I would realize they'd fetch shock more because they're like, Emrakul is coming down. That's 15 of Annihilator 6. I ain't messing around with tap lands, you know? I'm going to have good mana. And they'd go down to, like, 11. And then Archon ETBs. Yeah. and <laughs> Yeah. Or, like, I, I won five or six rounds legitimately. Or five or six games. Legitimately, like, Archon, Archon enters trigger. It dies on the next turn to, like, a Grist or something. And I just go, like, Bolt, Fire, Ice. Next turn, like, Bolt, you or whatever. It, that kind of stuff just happened a bunch. Archon does a better job stabilizing in a lot more board states, and Archon does actually a really good job of protecting itself. Because it hits Planeswalkers if there aren't any creatures, you can very easily get a Teferi and stuff like that. And the kind of the good answers to it are only Unholy Heat and Solitude in the format. There's not anything else that hard answers it. Teferi 3 sort of does, but often those decks are decks you can hard cast Archon on, so it's not actually. It's like a more of a uh, stall situation so against the solitude it takes a lot of resources to actually kill this thing and solitude decks typically rely on planeswalkers and the archon punishes planeswalkers and you don't actually have to go for it on four you know you can if the shields are down for them but often with this deck you threaten inevitability you have spell pierces and remand you can actually like go for things i've had a lot of like go for it remand my own thing go for it again on the next turn with all that in mind of what the deck's trying to do i think being less all in is good but i think if Valakut seems appealing, I would change my Archons for Primeval Titans, essentially. I just don't think Valakut's good, even if it's a turn. Yeah, it sounds like Archon's yeah. just a better Primeval Titan right now. Like, my initial inclination would be that, like, well, Archon's a lot more mana than a Primeval Titan, and Primeval Titan kind of, like, leaves stuff around. But if you're reliably getting the states in games where you're casting Archon, it sounds like, you know, that's, that's the right place to be. Yeah, I think Archon does a lot to self-fulfill that prophecy, too. Like, I know it doesn't seem like a lot... But I think if you if I told you Archon Uros and Croxes at the same time, yeah. yeah, I mean the first Archon makes it easier to cast the second. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, bingo bongo, you get it. It's like how the first prime time helps you cast the second prime time. You know. Just... <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's big true. Also, I, I think Amulet Titan is like, if you think Valakut's good, Amulet's a more versatile version of that. I'm right more now, explosive too. I think it's a less disruptible combo in general. Valakut, I mean, Skipshoot just has a real problem right now in modern, right? Where it's like, it's a turn five deck, no matter what you do. Like, even the creativity stuff, you really have to draw super well for it to be a turn four deck. And Amulet can be a turn two deck. And is often a turn four deck. That extra oomph and play, like, ability to actually play a diverse game plan and not just like, yeah, I got these Tri-Builder to block and hope it's good enough Farseek again, I think goes a long way to make that deck playable. That was your modern minute. <laughs> Abe, what about you? <laughs> My always improving moment is a little bit similar to yours. Um, I played not a showcase, but I played the modern or not the modern, the popper challenge. Played the popper challenge after uh, last week's band and restriction announcement banning uh, a tog, bonders ornament, and uh, prophetic prism. And I wasn't really sure where to start in the format, but I was playing the Sunday challenge, so I had information on what had won on Saturday, which was affinity. In a similar place with like just a worse sack outlet, a tog, 
you know, on Saturday night, I decide I'm actually going to be able to time to play this event. I know what I'm like kind of thinking about wanting to do. But where the improvement came in was that instead of doing what I normally would do, which is like, oh, I'll just run it back, maybe like figure out, like listen, hear what the uh, what the top eight was like from people who like know the information and then kind of like make some gut decisions about what cards are good or bad. I took a step back and especially because the format's so new after being shaken up with such you know important cards being taken out of it, uh, I really looked at the options in front of me and like I started to explore the possibilities for affinity, questioned whether or not the way it was built was the way that I wanted it to be, whether or not it actually like held up against the cyber plans I knew people could have for it. And then I wound up kind of looking at my alternatives and I didn't wind up having time between Saturday night and Sunday afternoon to like fully flush out an idea. And I tweeted about this where I said to like, there's not quite a feeling like playing in a challenge and just getting absolutely demolished by someone who put in the work you didn't do uh, with an idea that you kind of had where I wound up playing uh, this Jund mid-range deck, which has Cleansing Wildfire and the Indestructible Tapped Artifact Lands. You know, just red removal, some black card advantage, like ramping to cast, uh, like these green cantrip creatures and some of the Cascade stuff. You know, big take on the format. Uh, definitely like the biggest mid-range deck. Uh, but I, I chose to play this because I felt like it was an angle of attack that seemed really consistent, really strong. It was appealing to me before the Atog ban. But the things I wanted to change... Uh, that I'm like, you know, still working on on lists of now that I've seen another couple events of results than what I had on Saturday night was to play uh, Bleak Coven Vampires, which like drains for four if you have Metalcraft. Uh, it's like a four, three in black uh, and kind of moving away from some of the positive card advantage and like just kind of, oh, I'll eventually have more bodies than you game plan that this deck used to have in the list that I was looking at was exploring the possibilities of building all of these different decks and what I thought they could be built as and like shopping those ideas around was most of what my Saturday night was before before the challenge. And that's like a real big thing of growth for me because I used to be a player who would just copy a good list and play it. And that's, there's still times where I do that, but I would feel really intimidated by and not really feel comfortable kind of taking a spin on my own ideas and my own inclinations about the format and what I think I should be doing and, and trying to manifest that on paper. And I think that even though I didn't wind up pulling the trigger on any of my ideas, I drew up the lists. I still have them. I'm still iterating them. And that's miles ahead of what I would have been doing for myself, uh, you know, even just two years ago at the start of the pandemic. So really felt good to see my process yield a better habit and a better approach to what, what I was facing uh, in, in that situation. I want to talk about that a little bit, but I do want to give a shout out to our sister podcast, Common Knowledge. The host there, Christian, got 14th in that first challenge or affinity one um playing like a team or ramp deck that i believe he and spencer worked on so shout out to them and i'm sure they're gonna be talking about this so if you love popper make sure to check that out i think it'll come out on friday of the week that you're format's super great super fun to play all my games were super interesting i think i went like three four in the challenge my deck was like not very good the deck that i wound up settling on and net decking but uh i had a blast and, and definitely a great format to get into i think taking chances on things and like when you don't overcorrect either way, whether it goes good or bad, but just kind of add it as part of your arsenal and something that you know that you can do if like things don't aren't going any sort of way you're wanting is really really important. Whether you were to you know eight one that showcase or the, the sorry that challenge or like three four like you did, 
it wouldn't like veer you either way. You know what I mean? You're not like, well, I'm brewing all the time now, yeah. or like, you know, like, you know, <laughs> like that's yeah, definitely a case by case basis thing. If if you brew a deck and win a tournament, that's awesome. And honestly, you've done one of the hardest things to do in Magic these days. But that doesn't mean you brew every deck you play <laughs> for every tournament you play. It, they're all different. I'll never forget that time I won a Modern Horizons win a case and changed three cards for the tournament, and those three cards won me every single game in the tournament. Talk about deck building! Wow. What a genius. And anyways, that's why I play Arcana Cruelty. No, but uh, <laughs> that's always a perfect moment. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. The show will always be free. And we'll come back to that later, of course, with our Patreon question. But just want to mention it. Important content creation, etc. If you enjoy it, think about it. The show will always be free. But let's talk about BNRs, because that's more important than anything these days in Magic. Lord knows we don't get to talk about banned and restricted announcements enough. Today we're going to be talking about Standard, Legacy, Historic. Probably not so much in that order. And Abe, I think it's probably best if we show our ancestors some uh, respect and sort of start there with the Legacy Bands, which is just a ban, and it's Ragavan Nimbler Pilfler is banned. Ragavan gone. Yeah. More like Ragaband, am I right? <laughs> yeah. Um... Yeah, there's not really much to say about this. If you're someone who follows Legacy or even knows about the history of the format, it's just one of those cards that's too good to play on turn one, and there's Days and Force Will and Brainstorm, and those are never going away. So with that being said, the monkey, it really, I, I think, is just so absurdly powerful, and the amount of snowballing it does from turn one onward, the fact it has haste when you draw it in the mid to late game, the fact it's not exposed to a bunch of traditional ways that removal works, it's just really overperforms. It's a super huge check on the format. It's such a huge improvement to a threat suite that was already so good in Legacy. So I'm not not very surprised to see it go ultimately. Um, I know there was some talk that like metagame developments had kind of started pushing Ragavan back a bit, but the deck was still just the most played, right? And so... Uh, yeah, it was the most played, and like Watsi showed us the win percentage on it, which was 56%. Yeah. Which I didn't have time to go back and check, but I believe is about Hogak numbers. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, right. In modern. So, like, when a deck wins 56% of the matches, uh, not accounting for mirrors, because obviously mirrors wash the data, it's a really big sign. And also, really makes you think about when someone in your LGS goes a matchup 70 30. <laughs> maybe, maybe a topic for a different episode someday. Yeah. Who's to say? Ragavan is just a card that, honestly, really, really strong. I think the context of modern being more of a creature-based format and just the way everything's broken recently has allowed Ragavan to not be even, I would argue, even in contention for a banning legitimately. But in Legacy, things are a little different. The format had to really warp and adapt. And it's honestly just not something the Legacy players super enjoy having. And I think that's like, you know, reasonable enough reason to ban something. Even if the perception was like, hey, we're starting to adapt to things. I, I heard an argument pretty recently from, uh, God, I believe it was Jerry Rigotley, but it was basically like, just change your deck and put kill spells in it. You know, like, you can beat these things, just do it. But they counter-argued themselves, which I think is a very fair, that was like, yeah, but it does cost you $10,000 to change your deck in Legacy, so maybe, like, that isn't a fair criticism of us. Right? Yeah. Like, online, the metagame can be super fluid and adaptive, but that's the only Legacy we've really had. If I'm an Elves player, and let's assuming Ragavan was actually good against Elves and not bad, that would make my deck invalid, right? Like, I need to find some sort of, like, pile strategy. Now we're talking about buying duels. Even if I were to use Shocks, which were less effective, I still have to buy all these other cards. 
Legacy unfortunately has a price tag attached to it. So I also think that if you look at like the other options people want, which, which tends to be like people say Brainstorm is obviously too good. Days is starting to get towards the chopping block. It, it's on. It's in the hot seat in the community's eyes. But to the people who I know who play Legacy, it's the they own the cards in paper. They always have. It's the only format they play in paper. It's the only thing they care about in competitive Magic is playing Legacy. I've had conversations with them recently where they were like, if they ban Days or Brainstorm, I'm just not playing the format anymore. I don't care. They don't even play these cards in their deck. Some of them like to play land strategies or like to play, you know, death and taxes. And they're like, if they do these kinds of things and start doing these kinds of things, it's just not going to be the same. And I don't want that. I think it's very tempting, especially to people who are kind of tourists to the format, which I know I've been before where I'm playing a Delver deck because I, A, love playing Delver and have a lot of fond memories of playing it you know, before they've printed the upteenth banned card out of the deck. Like, B, I have to play for a tournament. But, like, my opinion should not matter more than the, the that of the people who actually are playing the format. As much as it kind of sucks to some that that gameplay is always going to be there and is always going to be represented, I think that having a core identity of the format is really important. And ultimately, Ragavan... Ragavan got picked in, in the Vintage Rotisserie draft I've been doing with my friends. Third round, I think. Mm. Deathrite Shaman, not drafted. <laughs> like it's probably wrong. Maybe people are messing up their drafts. Yeah, yeah, maybe. yeah. But 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 it is telling, you know. But like that card That's is true. just that good. And we're talking in a, in a you can take any card in Magic. Ragavan likely should have gone sooner, actually, with the way that some people drafted. Someone drafting mono red passed it and could have taken it as their second pick after taking Lutri. And they were like a little bit of a wheelski poo. Yeah, and then and then the person who was wanting to draft like blue red, whatever took the Ragavan, and it was the by far best card in their deck that wasn't Ancestral Recall or Oko. And it was just in the running. It was, it was probably the best card in their deck, though. And that that's just because it's so good. So I'm not surprised to see it go, uh, ultimately. I think it's just... It would just be another Boogeyman kind of card. I, I do want to say, I think Days has hit the point, and I don't think the Legacy community is okay with it. But to me, Days feels like Brainstorm. I think like... the entire core of Wasteland, Days, Brainstorm, Force of Will ponder like uh, and and even like i i used to say delver secrets but now that hasn't been played and probably will come back to being played i guess um it still saw two of baby he, he was yeah like, i'm, I'm just saying i had a tweet back in 2019 that was like oh a legacy open i know exactly where my deck is starting i've got 20 i've got like four like six four ofs right here that i know i'm putting in my deck and i know i'm playing this many fetches and this many duels like it's just <laughs> It's just how it is, that's man. True. That that's what the format is at its core to people, and um... that's fair. All right, so before we move on, because I don't know how much you looked at Twitter today, and I I do think it's weird that only Ragavan got hit. And the only one I want to ask you about, unless you have one you really want to talk about, is what do you think about Urza Saga in the Legacy format? Because that's a card that apparently a, a lot of people are like, "Yo, that card's going sooner than later." Yeah, I think Urza Saga is absurdly powerful in legacy and vintage i think that they're gonna i think that's a card they probably have their eyes on and are gonna give the format some ragavanless time to to see how it pans out it's a really powerful card and it's really low deck building cost you have to play like two or three things outside of like this land and the only counterplay is wasteland which is already usually very good or the only like free counterplay is to play wasteland which is usually really good I think some of the decks that are best with it, before there was like the Jeskai Murktide deck, which was like MH2 good cards surrounded by a cantrips or whatever. But um, they're like the Uro Loam decks. 
and besides affinity stuff are like the ones that are using the urza saga and like those decks are very good against wasteland as long as they don't die to like a wasteland kind of like crib you draw i'm curious to see what happens to that card in the format i think it is the strongest card from mh2 in the format now maybe murktide's contextually better because it's how the way things break out but i thought drc might go as well i thought murktide might go but uh you know whatever doesn't really matter yeah, I think how you started at Ragavan and work your way up. I think that's that's yeah. the way. To I, go. I think if you're willing to pull the trigger quick. It's fine. It's also like but, you know, is Urza Saga really the most offensive thing someone can do with a Life from the Lone deck? No, but I don't love Urza Saga. The more I play, I mean, like I do, it's messed up. I keep winning with it a bunch, but I do kind of like Loki hate. But it, it is just really strong. Yeah, it's really strong, yeah. and it always plays the same. It's kind of like. Yeah, it's so repetitive and like whatever. It's a zero mana planeswalker. Yeah, Urza Saga is a spell. That's just the way I look at it, everybody. You're like, you, if you figured out Wasteland's a spell, Urza Saga is a spell in your land slot. Uh, let's talk about Historic real quick, and then we'll really dive into Standard. Historic, they've banned Memory Lapse. What, what does that mean? It was suspended before. I mean, you're going to get your wild cards, and it's not coming back in the foreseeable future. Pretty telling already, um, but now you know, and you're going to get four rare wild cards. Congratulations for your trying times. And then they've rebalanced and unbanned to fairy time raveler um in part of the alchemy living arena game cards are being changed to rebalance and make them more fun for players and they want to bring back some cards that are banned that aren't iconic like brainstorm bolt etc and give them to the players so to fairy time raveler now is four mana five loyalty your opponent can't cast spells on your turn and everything else is the same Abe, do you have any thoughts on the kind of, like, either Teferi or this practice or whatever? Because there's also, like, 30 cards changed that we're not talking about. If you wanted to talk about, like, it's kind of just the alchemy philosophy now of, of rebalancing cards. I said this when we had that episode. We talked about our initial reactions to alchemy of how I felt things were going to go. And especially with Historic and how people used to, like, clown on the suspended list and the ban list. And they were like, well, what's the point of suspending the card if you're just going to, like, ban it in six months anyway? And I think kind of the purpose now is shown with their goal being to be able to rebalance the cards. And so Teferi wasn't one they were able to touch when they were doing that kind of stuff. But now that they've kind of opened uh, Pandora's box in that way and said that we're going to be open to rebalancing cards that are too powerful and introducing them and seeing and whatever, that's what Historic is going to be, which is good, I think, for Historic. And people kind of criticized it for not having much of an identity, but being this like big alchemy, an unrotating alchemy, if you will kind of seems like the natural conclusion. I do think it's funny that they have the spend list and ban list and then took this one off the ban list just because it had been so long instead of like getting to unsuspend it and show off this kind of feature of of the way they're managing Arena. But the card is less offensive than it used to be, I think. I think it's probably still really good. Uh, I trust that they have played it enough internally or, you know, done enough... It was in the Mirror Mirror event like this, too. Like, yeah. I believe it's the same as it was there. So they have some playtest data there as well, like in the public. Yeah, so I, I'm sure that they... Plenty of feedback on people's experiences with the card and uh, with it being rebalanced and felt comfortable with it and felt good about it, so... All I'm saying is in, like, six weeks, we're going to see Oko unbanned. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say this this sets the precedent, which I expected, of them going back to and rebalancing cards that are on the list that don't have to be. Like, I think Field of the Dead was one where they just rebalanced it by making le it legendary. Loki don't think it's enough, but whatever. We'll, we'll see how it goes in a couple yeah. weeks. I mean, it <laughs> certainly makes it something you can compete with, right? It, the multiple field draws, like, and in Standard we saw that, where it was just like, I have all four of my fields in play, I'm making four tokens every land drop, I'm making three land drops a turn. 
you're taking 24 every turn unless you're uh, unless you have a sweeper every turn or rose coming back yeah i don't know about all that stuff i I mean, I guess I'd believe it. It depends on what their goals internally are, and we don't know that. But but it does seem like they really want to, especially with the iconic, you know, mythic rare cards that they've missed the mark on over the last couple of years, make them accessible and playable, kind of turn what is a bit of a blemish on the history of of this era of Magic and, and Standard in particular into something where those cards can be effective, but not ones that people vehemently hate how they were designed so just quickly we'll talk about these because these do infect the alchemy stuff as well since alchemy is standard plus uh in standard alarin's epiphany is banned divide by zero is banned faceless haven is banned talk about alchemy a little bit here and then we'll go back and talk about these standard bands and specifically divide by zero which seems to be the talk of the town these cards all were either individually reworked for alchemy previously uh you know we saw in the in the initial wave of alchemy uh, Alrin's Epiphany get reworked, and Faceless Haven get reworked for balance purposes. Divide by Zero wasn't touched, but uh, I think... Has since been touched. Yeah, has, has since been touched to, to be changed in this update. And I think this is a, kind of a, a wild take if you were to read Twitter today, but I think I kind of like what they're doing with a lot of their goals with Alchemy, because it seems to be what they want to have Arena be and what they want uh, the Arena formats to look like is... Like, what they want Constructed Magic to feel like from plane to plane and set to set. You know, like, they did a bunch of changes outside of these bands to cards in the Alchemy-only set that maybe were a little too too powerful in the, like, uh, in the digital-only space that I think they're still kind of trying to feel out and get a sense for what they what they want to have happen with it. But also just a ton of random cards with the Venture mechanic and Venture into the Dungeon from the D&D set got changed. And I think they're really trying to have Arena be a cleaned-up version of where Paper Magic gets really hurt by the limitations of having to print the cards and have them be what they are, um, which is a strength and a weakness. You know, it's it's something that when they get it right and they have so often, and even sometimes when they get it wrong in a fun way, like the games have been have been great and Standard's been great. I know that we were talking before the Invitational about how we didn't want to see any changes because we wanted to see how the next set would come and how things would shake out. But, you know, now that we kind of have, these bands make sense and... Seeing them want to work on the cards they've already made and make them play in the way they want them to play and create these environments full of cards people want to play and support strategies they want kind of feels like what the future of Arena is. Like probably the, the biggest takeaway I have from all of this announcement is that I feel really like a lot less in the dark about what is going on with some of the formats that over the last couple of years have asked questions about like what's their goals, what's the what's the point. A lot of people were curious about what's going on with Alchemy. A lot of criticism of what is going on with Historic. And now it kind of feels like, you know, if you look at what they're doing, their goal is that you can play with all of these cards and they're all ones you want to own and like, you know, maybe try out. It will not surprise me if the narrative of Alchemy until they show us with data or something is that all these magic players that are online and plugged in and on Twitter and things like that and on Twitch are just going to constantly bash Alchemy. And the secret is, is there's this huge player base that loves Alchemy plays it a bunch and it's the most played format on arena the, the criticism of like changing these adventure and enter the dungeon cards they're like why are you doing these these cards aren't playables and it's like well they're trying to help these casual players out and like nudge them because they're they're clearly seeing that people out there are playing with these cards you know it's not like they're just like ah let's roll a dice oh we hit the dice roll cards we'll talk about those you know they are doing things with a purpose to serve an audience and like I would bet that if I were to be able to see the data that that green planeswalker girl that enters the dungeon is a really popular card that's been crafted a bunch, 
doesn't see a lot of play, whereas win rate is like too low. And so they just up the ultimate just to make it more exciting or let, or decrease the ultimate, you know. That really shows an alchemy, and I think it shows and also doing things like changing Leer to be less punishing, changing to Fairy to be less punishing, Holebreaker Horror being more answerable. It's not like it's inherently bad for a card to have can't be countered or to have hexproof, right? Or to have like an effect like Leers that like completely and utterly warps and changes the game. But if you're trying to serve a different audience that maybe is a little less competitive and you're they're seeing these cards not liking them, then these sort of changes make sense, right? And uh, it is nice to kind of see the alchemy is like going to be a home for people that maybe don't want the most competitive things in the world and want to have more quote-unquote fun, right? Kind of yeah. like you talk about like the, I forget the word, I believe it's emergent gameplay is what happens when there's something like in Melee or like Marvel's or Capcom 2, which are like these old fighting games that don't get patches, right? And these things emerge from them. And that's honestly what magic is in a lot of ways. Like we have BNRs, but you know, in, in a way they do too with things that the community bans or whatever. Yeah, like there's a metagame, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alchemy will not experience that ever. Well, not in the same way because those cards can change, but that's not inherently good or bad. It's just the way things are. Because I did see a lot of what you were saying about people just saying, like, why would they do this to these, like, random venture cards? And I think that if you take a step back, especially as a competitive player, and think about the fact that, like, how many more people are excited about a D&D card and a D&D set and, like, want to play a deck that goes into the dungeons and does these D&D flavor things? They want to play with their Mythic Rare that's super awesome, that is, like, super flavorful, a reference something they remember from playing D&D. Like, delivering on that experience is so important for magic for, for it to grow and for it to be something people want to play so i'm a big fan of that what i will hope that we see moving forward and i've said this before when we talked about alchemy initially is that more of the risky cards more of the things that are really pushing the envelope on the kinds of like power they're given and, and the way that they can warp a game are put into the alchemy set more than just the digital only cards because as much as like i appreciate not having to deal with tracking nightmares and paper i think that putting all of the risks, the really big ones, into a place where you can tame them and you can, you know, work on them more actively and you can you can tone them back is going to be really, really relevant to uh, keeping standard a format that people want to actively play in a different way than they want to play Alchemy. I had nothing to add of great value to what you said about Alchemy. I agree. Um, ended up with that, you know, request slash wish of yours as well. I think we should talk about Sanders, though. This is the big one. It had three changes. This is, in a lot of ways, the big format before everything that's going to happen over the last little while. And so it is kind of weird where it's like, keep it a buck, keep it a spade. Like, I have not played much Standard, and I have not tried to, like, break Standard formats or whatever or, like, do things in them since really the beginning of Val, right? Uh, I follow and watch these sort of things and whatever, and I stay on top of it. So I do feel like I have opinions that are not just like malarkey I'm going to throw at you today, right now. But it, it is weird because I feel like that's the sentiment shared with a lot of people. And I feel like that's why we've seen some pushback from what I wanted to first talk about here, which is Divide by Zero being banned. I think Aloran's Epiphany, everyone's kind of down. Probably talk about that card last. Faceless Haven, a lot of people can get and they understand why it was banned. But Divide by Zero is the thing I saw so much pushback on today. I was positive there were going to be a bunch of standard bans today. I thought there were going to be like seven standard bans. I thought like all those first rares that got hit in Alchemy were going to get hit in standard. 
Like, I thought maybe Luminarch Aspirin's the one that dodges it, but I thought Goldspan's going to go. I thought Hullbreaker Horror's going to go. Like, those sort of cards I just thought were going to... If Seeker's Chariot, I just thought they were done for. And they might be still long-term. Who knows? But I think that the main thing that they were hoping to do, whether it's true or not, and it doesn't matter if it's true or not, the bat, if Alvarez Epiphany was the best deck or not in the last format. I think it was. Some people think it wasn't. They would say it's sort of, yeah, it goes a certain way. It doesn't matter. The narrative was... You could only play Alrun's Epiphany decks or creature decks that punish Alrun Epiphany decks. There's no in-between. There's no room for these other things. They cannot realistically uh, succeed over multiple, multiple weeks. And Divide by Zero does a big job in making the blue decks actually beat up on those decks that are in-between. And it's part of why you see the Lord of the Ground creature decks do so well is they are not as punished by Divide by Zero. And when you play things like Teferi 4, Loth the Spider Queen, uh, try to resolve big sorceries, and your opponent divide by zeros you, and then does something else, like a windfall, or like windfalls and then divide by zeros you. Those are huge swing turns. And combine that with Leer, which is a card that hasn't left the format that I also thought was going to maybe leave, which I guess the checkmate for you uh, <laughs> in the in the classic Leer, Leer argument. But uh, like I thought that card was going to go. Divide by zero leaving makes that card worse makes the blue decks worse in general, opens up new cards, which is exciting for seeing play, in my opinion. We want to make sure the blue-red decks are not the best thing possible while still and you have them. It's kind of what this BNR is saying today. And the narrative, if we had divide by zero, I think would be a little bit more like, yeah, I'm just swapping these four cards. You know, I'm taking the four Alorans, putting in four Hullbreaker Horrors. Nice deck, idiot. Good thing Faceless Haven can't beat me now. And having Divide by Zero be gone, I think, does a, a big job of doing that and opens up the metagame in a lot more ways. One thing that I saw on Twitter, and I kind of had a conversation with someone about, was like, like, yeah, the format's infested with creature decks. It's all creature decks all the time. There's no control. And it's like, well, Alrun's Epiphany is eating them. And it's the classic, like, if you kill all the crows that are eating your, like, your cornfield, right, then you have a bunch of mice because you don't have crows eating your mice now. You know, we had this thing that was stopping this other thing, and now it's maybe gone. Holebreaker Horror really punishes those decks still. Leostir really punishes those decks, but maybe it's enough for them to actually work their way into the metagame. So, what do you think about Divide by Zero and all of that? When you look at the the ecosystem of Standard before these bans, and it was really this way going into the Invitational, it's been this way coming out of it too, is that there's two and a half things going on. You can either be going way over the top of everyone, by doing the stuff where you have infinite ways to generate too much time to the point where you cast Alrun's Epiphany twice in the same turn, and then you have a whole turn off, and you just deal all the, all the damage in the game that turn. You combo off and kill them, and that is so far over the top of anything any fair deck can do, or race with, uh, without cards like Faceless Haven. Heavily fueled by Divide by Zero, because any amount of playing spells that costs more than three... It just puts you at huge risk of getting, like, two-for-one. It's the same kind of thing as Remand. Like, we've seen Remand... Uh, I'm sure some people uh, who listen to podcasts play, have played against Remand in Modern. But if you're not familiar, it's just two-mana return, like, counter a spell, but instead of going to the yard, it goes back to their hand, and you draw a card. That card generates such a strong mana advantage, and this one always does what you need it to do and answers things that are in play. Like, it's not bound by the, by the problem of your opponent just sequencing around it or whatever. You can tap out on your turn. You can not use the mana. You can let them cast their their dumb creature for three or four mana, and then before it gets a chance to do anything, put it back in their hand. And that really just gives access to so much time 
that casting a seven, like putting seven mana spells in your deck, no longer feels like a drawback. And the fact that it's a card that does all of this, generates all this time, and also gives you the resources to capitalize on that time, like it's too efficient a card for the way that standard is and wants to be. And I think that, especially if you feel like the format was only creature decks, well, a big part of that is that the only way to compete with that is to put a clock on them and and force them to not be actually generating enough time or answering enough of your things. And while you could do that in a number of ways, there were various two-color mid-range decks, I think, that did this or tried to do this. But ultimately, Faceless Haven is the most efficient thing, and the incentives are just play a mono-colored, all-snow-basic deck that plays Faceless Haven if you want to be able to continuously beat up and apply pressure to these decks with huge inevitability. You know, all, all of it makes sense. I think Divide by Zero is the best card at bridging the gap. It was always your best draw. I think your hands with Divide by Zero probably won a lot more than your hands without just because it was always finding you what you need. You could keep a three-land hand with Divide by Zero, draw two spells, and still hit your fourth land drop because you get environmental sciences. The card was always live if you drew it. It countered the uncounterable things, answered the copies of Epiphany, and it also established that kind of lockout state with Leer, where the spells can't be countered, but they can be bounced back to your hand, so you can't do anything about this, and I'm going to keep my card advantage card in play, and I'm going to just overwhelm you that way. As much as I don't think these bands really change a ton in any relevant way, as you know, we're still waiting for Kamigawa, I think the format is still probably going to be some amount of control decks that try to cast Hallbreaker Horror and Creature decks, because those are still just some of the best things. I think that now, as we go into Kamigawa, you can play a two-color aggressive deck. You can want to do that and not feel like you're starting off way behind, because Faceless Haven is just that much better than whatever you're getting out of a second color. You can play, uh, you know, a control deck that takes a long time to actually find its kill condition because there's not something going so far over the top of it that it doesn't matter how well you can control the board in the early game. And I think that, you know, people are going to have to start actually finding and playing answers to cards rather than invalidating them, which I think was a lot of what was going on in the format before that. Yeah, I, I think one one other thing I want to mention about the Vibe by Zero real quick is that there was a, a conversation about, well, a conversation I was in about how I thought Divide by Zero provided too much versatility in the ubiquitousness of how much it answers cards. The retort to me was, versatility isn't a bad thing. And I would argue that typically that is not true, but just because something typically isn't bad doesn't mean it's not bad for you right now. I think that in this sort of standard format, we kind it kind of showed that like, hey, there are enough things to pressure this in other ways, and we're kind of having these situations arise because of this. And so I think a lot of people out there probably, you know, they heard us they're like, yeah, sure, but at the end of the day, it's just an unsummoned slash remand. What's the? It's not that big a deal. It is that big a deal in the context of the format. Context is all that matters for Magic cards. I don't care if your card's abstractly really strong. That literally does not matter. The only reason that matters is for thinking about if you should try it in a format. That's it. It's not just remand. It's not just unsummon. It draws a card from your thing, which is either like your gap bridger where you're in game and also the hidden mode of loot. You know, we talked about it on the podcast before, but it's like, oh, what is it? Divide by zero even matter with Lear in the late game. And it's like, yeah, you discard your lands and draw a new card. It might be a second land, but who cares? You've moved through that land. You've gotten some extra And it's value time walk whenever it's drawn. It literally, it undoes a turn of your opponent. In, in a game of standard, it undoes your opponent's turn unless they're casting multiple spells for one or two mana. There's no way to cut it in which you're not time walking some turn of your opponent's development. And in a standard format that really wants to be 
you know, ba- and, and it seems the goals are for it to be balanced around, you know, playing sweet cards onto the battlefield, using them, having some creature combat, you know, playing efficient answers or synergistic, you know, cards together. is It's just too good at breaking any of that up. Like, and so I'm really hopeful that this means that standard moving forward is able to be a world of two-color mid-range decks, two-color aggressive decks, you know, other kinds of control decks, like the, you know, decks like the mono black deck that were really strong. They can just go back to being a more controlling deck and trying to control the battlefield because they don't have to worry about doing all this stuff and then, like, just losing because they can't beat Alrun's Epiphany. Faces of being banned. A symptom of a divide by Zero and Alrun's Epiphany for sure, but also cards very strong and incentivizes monocolor decks in a way that, like, decks that are multicolor feel stronger, and when they work, they are stronger, but the inherent risk-reward that you take is, like, well, my mana sometimes stumbles, and, like, I can't cast all my cards. And while Faceless Haven offers that in a small dose by being four colorless lands in your deck, four colorless lands, believe it or not, a lot less of a risk than all those weird forests you have to play in your predominantly red deck, right? And the payoff is way stronger. It's not a thing you have to cast than you get to put in your lands. So Faceless Haven leaving, I think, does a lot to open up multicolored decks, like you mentioned. Love that. Alarm's Epiphany being banned, I don't think we need to harp on this opens up a lot of decks having an end game that isn't like overwhelming of galvanic iteration galvanic iteration outruns or just one galvanic and an outruns is really really hard to have this leaving makes it a little easier and while hopebreaker horror is really really good you still do need to force it through for seven mana and untap with it as the the cheapest way to get it in play and so like if you're getting it down later than that it's turn eight turn nine where you have like a lot of mana accelerants in your deck and then maybe if you do that your hopebreaker horror is worse and ultimately, let's keep it a buck. Why did these bans happen, Abe? Why do they happen now? Because previews start on Thursday, baby. And without these bans, no one would talk about the cards. Spoilers, we wouldn't talk about them at all until it was time to like do the set review. There's no reason to talk about them. These three cards invalidated every card in the set. I promise you, unless the card is insane. So Yeah, for, <laughs> from everything we know and everything it looks like, you know, I, I've seen some of the... Uh some of the leaks um, of like, you know, there's a cycle of like five mana sorcerer speed dragons that you can cast in all colors. And if you thought you're putting those in a deck when it's just gonna get divided by zeroed or you're gonna cast it and your opponent's just gonna like take six turns in a row, I got news for you. <laughs> I've seen a card because I got my preview card on Saturday coming up. So uh, let me tell you, my card's great. Maybe wasn't so great against these cards. Who's to it's called say? divide by one? Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot worse. It's a return to the. It's a return to the learn mechanic, mm-hmm. but it still does nothing. It's just. It's just learn. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like you could have had like a learn in Kamigawa. Uh, maybe it is there, but you know, who's to say? Feels like it's something you could do. Divide by one. Some evergreen lessons. We'll, we'll return to tribal types there. Oh heck yeah, we love evergreen lessons. That's the show's built on proving ground, training ground. Episodes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, that, that is going to do it for the BNR stuff. I think we've talked about it enough. Good. Glad. Happy about all of them. Awesome. Modern didn't need a ban. I know I memed a bunch on Twitter. If you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash ccmtg, like I mentioned earlier. And the show, the show is always free. But if you want to support the show and want to give back because you felt like we've given you some, then you can go over there and do that. You get some extra stuff, too. You get, like, the mic check, which is, like, a little pre-show. You get Patreon-only episodes. Uh, this one coming out here in the next week is going to be all about Hammer Time. We're talking to Abe about that, so if you're interested in that sort of thing, you get that. You get entry into the Arena Open tournaments that we're doing. Uh, 
tri-month, I'm sorry, bi-monthly, misspoke there, uh, which the next one's coming in February very, very soon. It's going to be Alchemy Week 1 of Kamigawa, so that's really exciting. Same format as the Pro Tour, so really, we're setting the metagame for the Pro Tour, Abe. That's the only reason way to look at it. I'm hyped to commentate it with you. I think it's going to be really fun. Yeah, it's going to be a great time. I can't wait for that. The entry into that is $10, so if you're wanting to play that anyways, maybe you should check over at patreon.com just become a patron of the show. You get access to the Discord, and you get to ask questions like this, which if you're picked, you actually get a little bit of money back at our sponsor, Oasis Games. So it's actually just free money Stonks. to become a patron of the show. Yeah. This week's patron question comes from Elson. Nelson asks, do you think Standard has a future in paper, or will it be relegated to essentially an online-only format? I think Standard is never going to stop being a paper format. And I think right now, it's very easy to think that it People aren't playing it. People don't really have the cards for it because there was this, uh, you know, little COVID thing going on. Um, And people are not excited for it. I think that if there's one thing that makes zero sense for Wizards of the Coast as a company to give up on, it's making people want to play with the cards that they print and, like, continue printing regularly and sell at MSRP to game stores and other outlets, and then they sell to their customers. It makes no sense to me as to why any organized play that we know that Wizards of the Coast is cooking up and working on, any system of that would not include Standard, and they would not prioritize Standard with Arena being their, being a primary product of theirs, Magic being a product primary product of theirs. And I think that when we see that change at the top and when people are aspiring towards and people are like, oh, we're going to have to play Standard if we want to play you know, these big Grand Prix style events or, you know, whatever the qualifiable events are, that that will trickle down to the local level, especially as people start going into their stores more, playing more events as it becomes safer, hopefully in in the areas in which you live. And well, what if there's like not enough of it? They can literally print as much of it as they want while it's in standard. Um, They can do as many supplemental products as they need to. And I'm sure that they probably have teams of people devoted to coming up with ideas to you know, defibrillate the kind of dead state of, of standard on, on many levels. And so I think there is a 0% chance that standard becomes an arena, like a thing you only play online arena only or whatever. I think that, I think that that is not something wizards wants to have happen at all. So they won't let it. It is awkward. So, cause I think short term, the answer is yes. Right. Like, I just think there's no real reason for them to push it without the OP. There's not much that could really push it without OP of some kind whether that's like NRGs or SCGs, Watsy doing stuff. And since we're not getting anything like that until 2023, I think the short answer is for the next year and some change, I think the answer is it is an online only format. It will not be in paper. But like Abe said, it makes the most sense for Wizards as a company to sell you the new product and have a reason for you to care about it outside of the few chase rares uh, for your older formats or your EDH decks. And they want you to have as many reasons to own as many different types of magic cards and different magic cards as possible. So pushing standard makes a lot of sense and has been a gateway for them in the past um, a lot. We have hit this kind of awkward point where standard, at least in my time, been slowly fading a little bit in the main thing. And a lot of times to me it felt like what happened is there'd be like a Grand Prix or two a year or maybe like a Grand Prix and SCG that were standard that were like in someone's radius of willing to travel and they'd buy a deck and they wouldn't really play again until the next year where like that thing kind of came back around. And then they're like, well, I own enough cards in this last deck. I'll buy this deck. And so they didn't stay hyper invested in standard, you know, unless they had an event for it. Right. And they were kind of buy cards and piece things together. 
as we saw for the SCG Invitational, or at least as we lived, you and I. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that when we don't buy standard cards for a year, getting that half that you already had is impossible because you didn't have it. So now you're buying these full things, and then it becomes much harder as someone who bought a full standard deck for the one tournament that I will never use ever again, and it was quite expensive. It becomes a big ask to be like, hey, do this again. And that initial buy-in is, spoilers, twice as much since you don't own half the cards like you did before. I think that makes it really hard for a lot of people to swallow and to kind of uh, do and have. So I think there will be a big push towards standard um, when COVID life either changes to the point where COVID's just endemic and we're not, I mean, it's a thing but not a huge deal or it's taken care of. And so I think until then, standards online only. But I think they still care about it. They, if they didn't care about it, they wouldn't do these changes that we just talked about today. They would just let it ride because it looks much better to not ban things um, than it does to ban them. Even though people want bans, they don't like bans either. And like the, the player base who doesn't like them are much larger than us and much more quiet. And they just leave. <laughs> so um, that's my take on that. Thank you so much, Ellison, for that question. If you want to hear a question like that on the show, you can become a patron over at patreon.com. You can also, though, go to the YouTube comment section. Let's keep it a buck, Abe, you and me. Just mano y mano. We're just trying to push that algorithm, baby. But we're here to help you and want to help you get the question on the show. You go ask the question on youtube.com slash constructive criticism. CCMTG, you can look it up. Ask a question in there, and you can win some store credit to our store credit to our sponsor at Oasis Games. And get your question asked here on the show without having to be a patron. It's kind of a win-win-win. It's a free roll, honestly. It's kind of yeah, insane yeah. that we even do it. We're yeah. literally trying to just give it away. We have a uh, yeah, YouTube question this week. So, the person put, This episode, being last week's, made me realize my goals have shifted quite a bit. I used to just want to play and do well in events uh, as possible. But now I want to brew a deck that becomes a part of the meta. And they put in parentheses legacy, so I guess legacy is a preferred format. It's something that can last long term. How would y'all recommend iterating on a list once I think I have a promising show? Uh, which kind of is funny. It kind of is like the second step to what we talked about earlier in our Always Improving segments. I'll kind of start things off here, and I'm curious to hear what you have to say about this. So, did kind of well with the creativity list. I've been interested now that the BNR is out, and we are for sure not losing companions. I'm interested in looking and seeing what can be done with creativity because I have found this shell that's proven to be doing really well, at least in these early days. And I think that one of the first things to do is to try and figure out and I clearly identify what the strengths and the weaknesses of the deck are and then figure out how you can uh, minimize and maximize those things without giving up too much of the deck as raw ability to play a game of magic assuming you're not an all-in linear combo deck if you're something like a doomsday let's say in legacy i guess doomsday is not a good example but um a charbelcher deck or a charbelcher variant you're going to want to lean into the extremeness but if you're something more like a four color zenith pile or maybe like a let's say you're a bant blade deck or whatever right you might want to try and figure out ways to fix some weaknesses you're finding in the deck while not giving up too much in other spaces. Try to find a more versatile card and stuff like that. So figure out what your deck's trying to do. Figure out its strengths and its weaknesses. Capitalize on those sort of things. Uh, and then be willing to experiment and have no sacred cows. For example, in the Archon of Cruelty deck, I would argue that I think having um, 
fire ice is super important because you need to ice down their mana at the end of turn three to set up your thing sometimes, like your combo. Uh, and having something to answer two early creatures is good. But I'm going to try builds with less fire ice to no fire ice, see how things go, see if that is actually a truth in the thing, and be willing to change as the metagame evolves with you. Because I think often what happens with people in decks like this is they will start to develop a deck, they'll do a thing. The metagame's still moving, spoilers. The world isn't standing still. It's not like an actual video game where the game's stagnant and you develop around it. It's moving with you. Uh, and things might change where it's like, hey, yeah, while Ragavan decks are everywhere and Hammer Time's really good, Fire Ice, you're correct, Mason, is great. Stop the counterspell, stop the X1s, you're doing awesome. But eventually that might not be the case. It might be more about tarmogoyfs and other stuff and i might want a card that's different than that in some way like maybe unholy heat that can answer bigger things that would be kind of my first early suggestions there's a lot of other things you can do and i'm sure ape has other stuff he might want to say but those are some good early steps i would say ape what do you think yeah so this is actually um kind of a question i'm kind of grappling with myself not in a sense of like that that's not my goal but um you know improving a deck builder and getting better at my iterative process of of evaluating and, and working with new ideas is is a central goal of mine i would say specifically for deck building and brewing i know that patrick chapin has at least one book solely on deck building that i would say is really good i think also that bryant cook might have written a lot about his development of the epic storm which is one of very few people who you can credit with truly putting an entire deck on the map from scratch he decided that this storm deck could exist and figure out how it works and seeing his iterative process over the years going from things like you know playing a bunch of chrome moxes and silences and setting him apart that way and like the rainbow lands to realizing he has enough artifacts that he's putting in play to like play like mox opal is really really interesting stuff there maybe you could glean something from that once you have an idea a concept that's really working once you identify what it is your deck is doing that is new and powerful enough to contend you know really figure out streamlining that and what it is that that's doing how that works in the engine of magic when, when you're like what is what is at the very like bottom level what your deck is doing is it is it like winning because it's overwhelming the opponent with card advantage and then utilizing that to do something is it winning because it's getting on board the earliest and is hard to answer um is it winning because it's locking the opponent out of their resources you know like find out what that thing is and then try to lean into other things that work well with your plan a you know and then you can worry about plan b and plan c for, for what your deck is but really Focusing on that core concept and honing that to being you're doing the thing your deck does the best, the best it can, is uh, the number one thing, and everything else really comes after that. So account, account for the sideboard. The sideboard's part of this. You play more sideboard than anything else. Sorry, I should have mentioned that too. But yeah, keep, like keep going off you're, game, you're complete. You're it. Your complete seventy-five should account for all of the things you see coming. But really, starting starting just from knowing, okay, this is what I'm trying to do. This is what my game plan is. How am I going to make it happen? And then focusing on, okay, now that I have a deck that I know is doing something and I'm making this thing happen, you know, what are the things that my opponents are going to do that I need to interact with because they're going to stop me from making it happen or, uh, you know, are going to beat the thing that I'm doing? And then figuring out what the least friction in the rest of your plan A is that you can play to play that. That's really been my process for a long time, you know, and ultimately it takes a lot of time. Don't be afraid to ask other people for help with working on, on this project, other people who you know, have good ideas or knowledge about the format because, uh, you know, they'll see things in, in different ways and ways that you maybe haven't thought of things before. And especially when it comes to things that maybe you don't even realize are sacred cows to you. They could have an entirely new perspective on the cards that are actually important 
or what your answers could be or you know what your other possibilities are that you hadn't even considered yet and um you know stay open-minded and really really work at it i think that it's really hard with a format like legacy where everything's so efficient and the interaction is so efficient but also the card pool is the deepest and there's the most going on so um you know, if that's the place where you've set your sights, I think there's, you know, a wealth of things you can make do, e- like, make happen, even to the point where you are someone who's invented this entire tier two deck. Manalus Dredge was was nothing before it was a meme, you know? Some dude showed up to a tournament and was like, I'm putting no lands in my Dredge deck, I'm choosing the draw every time, and it became a legendary part of annoying things your opponents say when they lose the die roll. You could make the next Manalus Dredge, hopefully in a way that is not as annoying to people who win the die roll. Hats off to you if you do, and I'm really, really hoping you do. But I think that's that's where I would I would say is the number one thing that will make you um, successful in brewing is really focusing on the core of what you're doing, going long on that. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I'm glad that the episode about goals helped you with your goals. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Constructed Criticism. If you want to find the show, you can find it over on the website, constructcriticism.com. You can find it on Twitter at CCMTG. You can find it on YouTube at youtube.com slash constructedcriticism. If you look up CCMTG, we also pop up. You see, it's constructed like the magic format, but some people think it's constructive. So a little bit of confusion there on the old YouTube algorithm side. If you want to find me, you can go to twitter.com. At Mason E. Clark. You can find me on twitch.tv slash the Mason Clark. Find me over on Card Kingdom each and every Thursday this week. Live reacts. Hot off the presses. Takes the Kamigawa cards. Literally got 45 minutes to an hour to pump out an article. Ready to go. Who knows? And then, uh, you know, maybe check out my uh, Twitter on Saturday. You'll see a preview card. I got a preview card from Watsy. Hashtag Final. free preview. Long time coming. Really, really happy for you, man. Hope you Thank keep you, getting yeah. Uh, hopefully we hope so we'll see but you can check that out over at twitter.com as well so does it have power toughness six two can you say can't you can't say. you probably I can't, can't I, say. I, I literally can't you say. probably can't, can't say. say that's probably I I literally can't i'm say. sure off i can't wait to see when it comes out so i can find out that it has six two i will say this that there's a way to figure out a combination of six and two on the card I don't even like know like you means. can move numbers around. Maybe it's the collector number. Maybe it's something. I've got. There is the number there. six and the number two on the card. Is that what you're confirming? Correct. Somewhere on the card. Correct. Well, you might need some addition too. Okay, but in all the numbers, yeah, yeah. you could assemble a six and a two. Correct. In the year 2022, when they print the copyright at the bottom, so that's a six that's... and a two right there. <laughs> well, <I was laughs> say like where maybe I got my like. Let's relax, Abe. <laughs> All right. Anyway, sorry, I'm too busy. I'm having too much fun with the puzzle. If you want to find me, you can find me over at Twitter.com/slash More Nothings. I'm still doing hammer coaching. If you want to be the best hammer player alive? No bands yet. You can start your process with me. That'd be great. You can crush people like Mason who play tier two decks. In the showcase. Curious, my four Prismari Command deck, four Fire Ice deck, you want to go? I'll play for hundreds. Anyways, uh, not that I would ever bet on the outcome of Meta Magic, but if I would, hundreds I'm of likes on like Twitter. Hundreds of dollars. <laughs> Crazy. That's a good one for the video listeners or video watchers. You want to uh, watch anything else on the network, you want to make sure to check out Common Knowledge we talked about. It's a popper podcast. Popper, huge changes. We want to check all that out. They're going to be talking all about it. We want to check out drafting archetypes. Kamigawa is coming out pretty soon, and Sam Black 
has a pretty cool style of thing where when the previews kind of first drop before he's even drafted, he'll kind of talk about some of the stuff going into it, his early thoughts, which is really helpful. And sometimes he'll even kind of theorize how you're going to draft archetypes, which is the whole point of the show is Sam Black talking about like the different archetypes you can draft. So the show doing that makes sense, but it's very different than what you get from like LR with Lords of Limited, where they're kind of like grading cards and theoretically traditional bread and butter magic. And Sam doesn't really care about that a lot of the time and more so cares about like this is the context and the world we're in ninjas are a big part of the set so this ninja tribal card you know big buff here it's not something we normally play or whatever uh and so we get to see one of the greatest minds in magic kind of talk about that it's super big to check that and then we have homeward path for people who are kind of parents on the grind thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of constructed chrism we'll see you back here next week for another episode of ccmtg <laughs>